Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, um, we're focusing on COVID-19, but specifically for those people that are just about to or in the process of filing some interim financial statements, whether they be quarters or halves. And to help me through that, I'm joined by Gary Berkovitz. Welcome back, Gary. Hi, Ruth. Good to be again virtually back. Maybe one day that'll mean something soon. (laughs) One day we might be back in the office. We'll see. I'm quite enjoying the virtual world. Okay, so we're talking about, um, you know, June might be, obviously not everyone does quarters, but it could be the first time you've done um, some interim financials. So let's focus on what you might specifically need to think uh, through in an interim context. So if we start with like big picture IS34, what do people need to think about? Okay, yeah, that's it's, it's a good idea. Let's start big picture. So so folks will recall IS34 effectively requires an entity to, to include an explanation of, of events and transactions that are significant to an understanding of the changes uh, that an entity has undergone since the, the end of its last annual reporting period. Now, now depending on your industry and the specifics of your, your operations, it's very likely that COVID-19 has had a, a significant uh, impact or would be considered a significant event that might require additional disclosure and presentation in a number of areas in your in your interim financial statements. So some of the things listed in the standard um, we might expect to include as a result of COVID-19, you know, write-downs of inventories and payments of financial assets, uh, PP or intangibles, um, changes in your business e- uh, economic environment um, that affect fair value, um, loan defaults or breaches of covenants, which unfortunately there's been an increase of, and any changes in the fair value hierarchy, um, just to name a few. There's, there's obviously a list. Now, even if you are, I guess, one of the rare entities that has not been directly impacted, you know, it might still make sense to provide some form of messaging explaining how and why you're uh, in your interim communication to the markets, that how you've been affected or haven't been affected by COVID-19, because I think it'll be information that investors will be looking for either from a positive, negative or neutral perspective. So maybe just to summarize all of that, I guess big picture or the overall message would be you know, this year's interims uh, might need to be a little bit more or a lot more detailed than what we would have expected in, in more normal times. Okay. And one of the, if we go now, I suppose, into maybe some of the specific issues, one of the things you meant there was mentioned there was impairment. And we're always looking out for every reporting period, looking to see if there's an indicator for impairment from a non-financial perspective. Um, what can you tell us about indicators for impairment? Yeah, so... COVID, I mean, I guess overall COVID-19 and, and, and the measures taken to control, control the outbreak are likely to have reduced future cash flows for many entities, or in some cases, they, they've, they've resulted in an increase in, in operating and other costs. And this means entities should assess whether there are any indicators that an asset or a group of assets uh, may be impaired on the basis of both internal and external sources of information. So that's that's one of the requirements in IS36. And I think what's important to remember here is that when you're making this assessment, entities to re- need to remember that, that there's a principle there. So is there an indicator that you aren't going to be able to recover the carrying value of your identified assets or your recognized assets? And so although there are the indicators we have in IS36, IS36 I think it's important to remember that that's not just a checklist. So, so maybe with that as a caveat, I'll now maybe list some of the things that folks should give a checklist. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We we don't we don't like checklists, so it's it's not a checklist. But if if you were to put me on the spot and say, 
Gary, let, let, let our listeners know some of the things that you might need to think about when you're determining whether or not you've got an indicator of impairment. Um, you know, I might say, well, if you're focusing on internal sources of information, uh, the most obvious one would be, have, is your actual financial performance significantly lower than, than the budget pre-COVID-19? Uh, are your cash flows significantly lower than earlier forecasts before COVID-19? And then maybe more specifically, has there been any announced changes in your business model, any internal restructurings that are pl being planned and or any, any discontinued operations? And if we then move to, to external sources of information that folks may want to have a think about, have there been material changes in, in mid or long-term growth rates in your industry compared to the estimates uh, before COVID-19? Uh, a very common one is your market capitalization. If you're a listed entity, is that now less than the book value of your net assets? And uh, in addition, then just, uh, again, fluctuations in, in foreign exchange rates or commodity prices to the extent that you are significantly impacted by, by Forex or, or commodity prices. Okay, perfect. So nice, long, not checklist principles, <laughs> examples to think through. And obviously, once you have got, uh, you've decided you have got an indicator impairment, you're into IS36 and you need to do a full impairment review. We're not going to cover that today because we've only got our 20 minutes, but we have got another podcast on the impairment test with Paul Shepherd and he talks through all the different things so if you are coming across you know running an impairment model and you you haven't done one for a while or you need some advice and that's another good one to listen out to yeah definitely um, now, definitely rather listen to Paul than me when it comes to that <laughs> well, I was not saying <laughs> I'm going to be recommending lots of podcasts throughout Gary uh, the other so obviously impairment is you know when you do the test you are looking at the measurement of an asset and there are other measurement issues that people might come across um, in their interim period so maybe if you could talk us through some of those sure and I guess maybe one that's maybe not as obvious for folks and I'll start with that, which is um, ECLs, because I think there's been a lot of focus on the impact of COVID-19 on, on ECLs for banks. And sorry, I normally hate using uh, acronyms. So, so it's uh, expected credit loss. So we're talking about financial assets, uh, not me measured at amortized cost. But I think the important thing here is that it affects corporates as well. And I think that's something that maybe folks have, have not thought about. So for example, it impacts your trade receivables, contract assets, or any other receivables uh, that are financial assets. And I think COVID-19, as, as we've said before, had a significant impact on economies and, and, and companies and the economic environment has has changed dramatically um, and therefore we would expect that uh, the impact on ECLs you know, in, in many cases, won't be able to be ignored. And I think what's important here is that, you know, the assumptions and simplifications that corporates may have previously used uh, may no longer hold, and you may need to be revisited, or they may need to be revisited. And I think in particular, a couple of things that, uh, that corporates may want to think about, and that's whether or not you've had groupings of receivables that share similar credit risk characteristics. You know, in some cases, that's a simplification that folks may have undertaken. Now, the, the, the credit risk profiles may have changed as a result of COVID-19. And I think then the one that also that at least resonates for me is, you know, the inclusion of forward-looking information into the loss rates that you use and, and your scenario analyses. So again, if I think of a simple corporate, which is where I'm a lot more comfortable, um, you know, a lot of the time you've got matrices where you've assumed a certain loss rate and then you kind of add on a what I think is going to happen in the future. And I think that is the the input that folks really want to be focusing on because I imagine our view of the future is very different from a pre-COVID to post-COVID situation. 
So I think the key message here is you, you probably want to look at your ECL assumptions and your matrices sooner rather than later because there's probably a good chance that, that they may have significantly changed as a result of the, the current economic environment. Uh, I think I think maybe one other one to mention there is 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 pensions. Uh, and I think management, to the extent you have material pensions, should consider whether any of the assumptions used uh, to measure the employee benefits should be revised. Uh, for example, the, the yield on high-quality bonds, expected final salaries, risk-free rates in a particular currency, all of that might have changed as a result of recent developments. And another another more obvious one still staying in pensions is, is probably plan assets, which, as folks know, they need to be measured at fair value. And as we know, in the in the current volatile markets, the fair values of, of assets have, have, have been moving, unfortunately, in most cases in a downward direction. And I think the important thing there is, you know, any remeasurement of the net defined benefit liability at the date that these assumptions change would, would be presented through OCR. But as I say, the important thing is when you're looking at assumptions and, and measurements of significant assets and liabilities, don't forget about your uh, trade receivables, other receivables and um, pensions to the extent that they are material. Brilliant. So more measurement issues. And obviously, we haven't talked about fair value in general, but that's another thing to think about if you've got things measured at fair value. We do, again, have another podcast on ECL specifically focused on corporates. To your point, Gary, you know, it's sometimes something that can get missed in a corporate setting. So another thing to listen to there. IS34 also gives some guidance, I suppose, where there's annually determined items. So the the thing that automatically comes to mind there is tax. Um, And again, Dave Walters did a podcast with us where he's gone into more detail of tax. But can you pull out anything specific for interims that is going to be a challenge? Yeah, sure, definitely. And I guess maybe before we go into the specifics, it's it's maybe worth reminding ourselves that IS34 has this concept that the the frequency of your reporting should generally not impact the the measurement of items. So in other words, you apply the same recognition principles for assets and liabilities as you do in your your annual financial statements. But when it comes to measurement, in some cases, uh, when you're preparing your interim financial statements, you need to apply what what we call a year-to-date approach um, to estimate some of those amounts. And and to your point, Ruth, taxes is a great example. So so what this means uh, from an income tax perspective is that your income tax expense for an an interim period uh, should be based on an estimated average annual effective income tax rate. And that sounds like a foreign language, you know. So what, what this means, hopefully in more plain English, is if you expect your annual tax rate to be 20%, you know, you generally apply 20% to the income before tax in your interims. That's what I think it's, it's trying to say. Now, I think that the two points here that are worth mentioning is we understand it's very hard to, to know what the estimated annual effective rate is going to be when the future is currently so unpredictable. But I think the important point um, is that this still needs to be performed. And I guess we, we always reiterate that if there's some critical judgments or estimates that, that folks needed to make um, in coming up with that expected uh, rate, uh, you may want to think about that disclosure and maybe explain to users how you've gone about that so that folks are aware of the range or uncertainty in coming up with that estimate. And then I think maybe one last point is that there's you know also really some some very specific guidance related to disallowable material expenditure and how entities need to consider adjusting that estimated annual uh, average effective rate in these cases. Um, I, I, we could probably do a whole podcast on that alone and I probably need pictures, but I think the point is, you know, with, with a lot of impairments 
in, in the pipe and a lot of them not being allowable for tax purposes. If you have a disallowable material expenditure, I'd suggest that, you know, you maybe it might make sense to look at, at guidance or chat to someone maybe like Dave or, or, or even myself. <laughs> you're going to be getting a lot of phone calls, Gary. I'm going to include your email address on the bottom of it. So you're going to have everyone going, <laughs> yeah, maybe, can I have tax advice, please? <laughs> yeah, maybe that, maybe that wasn't the smartest thing to say on the podcast. You may need generous to with your time. <laughs> So that's obviously what IS34 says. The other exciting thing that's happened in the last couple of months is the ISB has been beavering away and they have issued one of the quickest amendments in all time, which was around IFRS 16, so leases and around accounting for modifications. So if there's a, a concession. So with June, can we uh, can we actually adopt that new amendment? And what does it tell us? Yeah, and I think maybe before I do a quick summary of this, just maybe again, reiterating, you know, hats off to the ISB. I know a lot of time folks are very quick to criticise how slow things move, but I think they did an incredible job of putting together a, an exemption to try and help folks in the current environment. So really playing their part as well. Um, but I think... They could just rewrite a few other standards in six days. <laughs> <laughs> let's not let's yeah let's not push our luck here. I think let's be let's be grateful for what we got. But um, I think just in in just to set the scene, I think we're seeing a lot of concessions for 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 lessees, and and the concessions take a variety of forms. But maybe the most commonly uh, one most commonly we're seeing them in the form of payment holidays, and in some cases deferral of lease payments. Now I think that the issue was it can be complex to assess whether those types of rent concessions meet the definition of a modification under IFRS 16? And if so, how you apply the modification accounting? So that was really the issue as folks were saying, you know, for some people who have hundreds, if not thousands of leases, to try and do that assessment um, in the amount of time they had was going to be very, very difficult. And so um, the ISB responded and, and towards the end of May, they issued an amendment to IFRS 16 that provides uh, an optional practical expedient for lessees only uh, from a set and, and, the, and the expedient basically says to lessees, you don't have to assess whether a rent concession related to COVID-19 is a lease modification. Instead, lessees can elect to account for that type of rent concession in the same way as they would if they were not lease modifications. Uh, and so you might say, okay, well, then what does that mean? So in many cases, you know, that will result in, in accounting for the concession as a, a negative variable lease payment uh, in the period in which the event or, or the condition that triggers the reduced payment occurs. So again, you might still be saying, okay, well, I still don't understand what that means. I guess what it means is that, you know, for a rent reduction, you'll effectively reduce your, your liability because you didn't have to pay, but the liability went down and there'll be a gain for the amount forgiven in the period that you that you get the rent concession. And if the if the rent concession was just in the form of a deferral, you would still get a PL impact, but that would only be the the difference in the in the present value of the delay in the payment. Now, you know, and to answer the question you actually asked, Ruth, was can folks use that if they've got a junior in? The answer is yes. Uh, as I say, the amendment was published towards the end of May and it's available for immediate immediate application. But just a small caveat there. Just remember, if you if you are subject to any endorsement process, just check whether or not that uh, amendment has been endorsed in your local territory. Perfect. Don't worry, I did ask both questions. I, I just rattled them together in a very unhelpful way of like, tell us everything and tell us if we can adopt it. So you did perfectly and told us everything. As we're moving to the end of our 20 minutes, we won't get to disclosure yet. I've ruined the punchline. Let's start with the presentation. Um, but yeah, presentation and disclosure and headlines for interims. Yeah, so um, have we done a podcast on this already? I can't recall. We probably have done yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it came out the other day. Exactly. I was going to say, I'm sure I did it as well. But I think maybe just again to, to reiterate a couple of the headliners for folks. 
just to remember that additional line items, um, subtotals, and headings uh, representing incremental costs as a result of, of COVID-19 are permitted by BioFRS and IS-1, uh, but provided that they give more understandable information and, and they don't obscure other material information, so kind of use, use with caution. I think what's also important is, you know, that if entities have an existing accounting policy on how they identify exceptional items or items that they've previously drawn attention to, they should be consistent with that previous policy unless you there's a really good reason for changing it and you're prepared to be consistent with that change moving forward. And if you don't have an accounting policy, I'd say just think long and hard before you uh, start adding specific things, because in theory, that policy will need to be applied consistently um, in a post-COVID-19 world. I think another thing is that in some cases we've seen it's sometimes very difficult to separate the effect of COVID-19 from the effect of other external factors like reductions in commodity prices or general macro macroeconomic challenges. And so to the extent that it was difficult to try and make that differentiation when you're trying to draw attention to an item, it might make sense to be pretty clear in your policies and disclosures on how you've made that judgment. And lastly, you know, if you're planning to include any new or modified alternative performance measures, uh, it makes a lot of sense to consider any local regulator guidance because many regulators, you know, have been active in the space in, in terms of providing, by and large, or in most cases, pretty helpful guidance on what may or may not be appropriate. So that, that definitely worth making sure you don't fall foul of any regulator advice in that in that area. Perfect. I think we started big picture, sort of what does IS thirty four say, and if it's a significant. Um, event or transaction you should disclose it so let's close the loop and think about any other disclosure people should be thinking about yeah we always end with disclosure which is which is i think in this in this in this environment very important so you know, so, so there are clearly specific disclosure requirements in IS-34. You know, it might be triggered as a result of COVID-19. I mentioned some of them at the beginning of this podcast, and, and I'm not sure folks want me when we here to recite the remaining kind of requirements from the standard. But I think maybe that I'll, I'll finish up by saying I think it's important to reiterate the principle that I pointed out right at the outset, you know, which is IS-34 is trying to tell the story of what significant events or transactions happened between the last set of accounts and this interim reporting period. And so with that in mind, you know, entities should ask themselves whether their disclosures make it, make it clear to users how COVID-19 has impacted their results, their financial position, and the risks for moving forward. And have they done that in a clear, transparent, and easy to understand way? Now, I know that's, that's easier said than done, and that's really not an easy task. But um, I'm sure there's lots of guidance out there to help, and, and, and hopefully this podcast um, can act as one of, those, one of those bits of guidance. So best of luck. Good luck, everyone. Perfect. Thank you very much, Gary. That was really helpful. Lots to cover. And obviously, um, like we said, this is really just almost like a, to bring everything together if you're specifically going through interims at the moment. But there's loads more detail in other podcasts. We've also got the main piece of accounting guidance is our in-depth publication. And it feels like every day, almost every day, we add additional frequently asked questions where we get questions so please please do click on inform to see that and it's also available on pwc.com so um, thank you Gary for joining us come back we could do another podcast soon and everybody else thanks for listening stay safe and happy accounting the preceding program was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP this content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.